Happy New Year! And uh, there is no such a greeting, but I'll give it anyway. Happy Epiphany! Uh, how many of you will come from a liturgical background to know that we are in just wrapping up the season of Epiphany? Epiphany is a celebration, uh, historically, of the coming of the wise men to uh, worship the child. Hence, uh, the first Noel, or the We Three Kings earlier in the service. Anyway, welcome. I hope that there's an Epiphany to us today as we meet the Lord and He meets us. We're continuing in our journey through this, the story. This is an abridged version of the Bible, uh, starting from the beginning and going all the way through the end. And the idea of the story is that after one year together, we will have read the great themes, the high points, the main characters of Scripture, and be conversant in 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 the fact that the whole of Scripture is one story, not a bunch of them just kind of stapled together. So we have continued. How many got back into the swing of things this last week and read chapter 13? Good for you. You guys are so faithful. It's fun to pastor a church like this. You heard Ellis preach so well last week on the king who had it all. Who was that? Solomon. Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And under his reign, Israel grew. They grew in number. They grew in power. They grew in wealth. Solomon accumulated so much wealth that he literally wallpapered the inside of his buildings with gold. That's a lot of wealth. And so you could talk about that age as literally the golden age of Israel. And it looked like everything was up and to the right. What could possibly stop the people of God? They were on a rampage. Well, as a matter of fact, they are about to be derailed in a catastrophic way. How did that happen? I'm going to share with you a little uh, dirty little secret. I'm actually a big Miss Universe fan. Um, you know, I enjoy watching the Masters during the spring, I, and I, you know, the Super Bowl's fine, but for me, the, the epic media event of the year... I can't even get through it. <laughs> Miss Universe. Although... If all of the Miss Universe pageants ended like this year's Miss Universe pageant, I might watch it more often. Did you hear what happened? Steve Harvey was the host, and they were down to the final two candidates, Miss Columbia and Miss Philippines. And Steve comes out and with great fanfare announces, and the new Miss Universe is Miss Columbia. And the crowd goes crazy, and they begin to cheer, and they put the crown on her, they put her sash on her, and she begins to do the tearful walk and wave. And then this happens. Okay, folks, uh, there's, I have to apologize. The first runner up is Columbia. that awful? (laughs) 
Who's going to wear the crown? Who will reign as the new Miss Universe? It is so awful and so embarrassing and such a wonderful gift to a preacher. Especially a preacher who is preaching this chapter of the story. Because today we discover that Solomon has died and two men have risen up and there is a great power struggle between the two of them. They are fighting over the same crown. They are fighting over the same throne. And as a result, the nation of Israel is torn in two, tragically torn in two, and never to be reunited again. It was one of the darkest moments in the history of the people of Israel. And to get a glimpse of what this meant, it would be the equivalent of this. Let's say we've completed our great civil war, and instead of all of the nation being united again, all that remains of one side is Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and the rest go to the other side. And that's exactly what had happened in this encounter that we are about to read. The nation of Israel is just torn in two, tragically, catastrophically. So how did this happen? And I would say in two words, bad advice. Bad advice. As you will read in this coming week, three kings took three horrible pieces of advice And as a result, the people paid the price. And frankly, it started with Solomon. It was Solomon's fault. You know, Solomon the wise, Solomon the powerful, Solomon the rich. Near the end of his life, he became Solomon the stupid. (laughs) And the whole nation was torn apart because of this. So I want to back up to last week's reading for just the last part of it in order for us to to set the groundwork for what we're going to look at and what you will be reading in the week to come. So our first of three readings uh, this morning is going to come from 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11, beginning with verse 1. I've uh, shortened it a little bit, so you'll need to follow along, but uh, that's where we're going to be first. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. King Solomon loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He allowed, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this is a sad story. 
But it is not a story that belongs 3,000 years ago only. It is a story for our day, for we are people who listen to many, many voices, offering much advice, and so much of it is bad, so much of it is ungodly, so much of it is destructive. Lord, would you, through your word today, give us some good advice and empower us to follow it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If ever there was an example of, a, of someone who started strong and then who stumbled at the finish line, surely King Solomon is the poster child of that phenomenon. He started so strong. I, I really wanted to preach. It's a separate sermon to be preached. Who cares how you start a race? Who cares how you're running, running mid-race? The question is, do you finish the race? Do you throw yourself across the finish line, utterly spent in the pursuit of all God wants you to do? Paul could write in Second, uh, Second Timothy, I fought the good fight. I have what? Finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's about finishing. But Solomon couldn't finish. Solomon, the, this wise, this, this supernaturally empowered God who was blessed, I mean, the king who was blessed by God, Solomon stumbled with the finish line in sight. And how did that happen? Bad advice. Solomon's downfall began when he began to listen to the, the, the advice of his pagan wives. You know, it was Solomon who once wrote, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, 20. It is, isn't it supremely ironic that the man who would write these words would be beguiled by such seductive, awful advice? If, ever, if, if there was a reason that God warned his people not to intermarry with pagans. There was a reason he did it. God knew how destructive it would be to have the person that is lying next to you in bed whispering to you, why do you worship that Yahweh? My, my God is so much more powerful, so much more interesting. I mean, you can go on worshiping Yahweh if you want, but, but couldn't you just build a, a little temple for me so that I can... Worship my God? What harm would that be? I mean, if you really loved me, you would do this for me. How'd you like to hear that 700 times from 700 different women? Yeah. The surrounding nations worshipped fertility gods for the most part, and they were brutal and awful fertility gods. And so their, their temples were usually houses of prostitution because they believed that the act of copulation was, was actually an act of worship. Um, their, uh, their idols were normally, uh, like the Asherah poles, were normally uh, phallic symbols, very graphic expressions of sexuality. And these temple complexes were always built in the same places. Where? On the high places. Remember that phrase, high places. It is used 116 times in the story. And we're going to come back to it in some detail next week when we look at the story of Elijah. But all of these pagan temple complexes were always built up in the high places so that everywhere you turned, even though you're standing in the middle of the, the chosen land, the promised land given to God's people to worship the one true God, everywhere you turned, if you lifted your eyes, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? That's what they were talking about. 
They, you lift your eyes up to the hills and what would you see? A reminder of the pagan idolatry that surrounded you and in this case was beginning to permeate the culture. Verse 4 of our text is particularly tragic, I think. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Isn't that awful? As he was growing near the end of his life, a time when he could have been in his old age revered and honored, he could have finished strong with the God that soon he would be meeting face to face. Instead, his heart was turned and he began to chase after the gods of his pagan wives. There is a reason that the Apostle Paul would later say to the Christians, write to the Christians, do not be unequally yoked. Have you heard that expression? And what Paul meant by that was do not marry an unbeliever, do not date an unbeliever, do not go into business with an unbeliever. Why? Because the unbeliever's core convictions are different than your core convictions about what it means to live life for God. That's why the unbeliever is focused on other things. The unbeliever cares about other things. The other unbeliever gives different advice and whispers other things. They worship other things. The unbeliever will not lead you into a deeper relationship with your, with your Lord Jesus. The unbeliever will turn your heart and lead you to destruction and idolatry. That's what the warning was about then. That's what the warning was about with Paul. It's the warning that comes down to us today. This is the bad advice that comes from the unbeliever. And so the warning would say, if you can avoid it, if you can flee from this kind of a relationship, and if you can't, if it's too late in that respect, then pray. Pray that God will redeem the relationship. Pray that God will cause you to hear His voice. Pray that God will help you to seek godly counsel from others. Pray that God will make you the person that does the influencing instead of the one who is being influenced to the ill. But beware of this. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, the craftiest, the most creative man who ever lived, he did not have the strength to pull this off. He listened to the advice of unbelievers. He was yoked with unbelievers. As a consequence, it destroyed him. And it destroyed his kingdom. And as a matter of fact, it destroyed his son too. His son is the next part of the story. His son's, son's name was Rehoboam. Say Rehoboam. We're going to call him Rio for short. Say Rio. Solomon wanted Rio to sit on his throne as every king wanted his son to take the throne after him. But God had different ideas. He said, that's not going to happen. After all you've done, I'm going to tear your kingdom from your family. I'll let you keep a fragment of it just as a reminder. Also, by the way, just to keep the scarlet thread intact. But I'm going to tear most of it away and I'm going to give it to another person. And the person that God decided he was going to give the, the kingdom to was a guy named Jeroboam. Say Jeroboam. And his nickname is? Jerry, right. Jerry. Jerry was actually a, a subordinate in Solomon's uh, uh, council. He was a, a faithful member of the king's council. But when Solomon heard that Jerry was the one that God wanted on the throne, he said, well, I'm going to trick God. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to kill him. Jerry heard the news and he fled to Egypt. Everyone who wanted to go to safety seems to flee to Egypt. Not so much anymore, but that's what they did in those days. Jerry fled to Egypt. But when Solomon died, 
all of the people of Israel gathered in a city called Shechem. And they called Jeroboam to come back. And so he did. And this was Rehoboam, Rio's opportunity. This was his moment. And so they came to him and they said, listen, we're going to give you some... It's a chance for a reset for you, Rehoboam. Because as a matter of fact, the golden age of Solomon was tarnished. Solomon built his great kingdom on the backs of his people. He taxed them brutally. He conscripted thousands and tens of thousands of them to build his great chariot cities. So even though he was wise enough and powerful enough to hold it all together, when Solomon died, by the time he died, his people were impoverished, exhausted, and fed up. And so when they came to Shechem, they told Rehoboam, Listen, you have a chance to press the reset button. You have a chance to make things right and to to make it good for all of us. If only you will listen to some good advice. He doesn't. Instead, he listens to some awful advice. So let's turn to our second reading, 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam heard this, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh load and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will be your servants. They will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. The minute they heard that advice, the the response of of, uh, Rehoboam, the people said, we're done with you. And the nation was separated in that moment. And from that moment forward, there were two nations. The one to the north was the nation of Israel. It was comprised of ten of the tribes. And to the south, that little rump group, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, remained. And that was called Judah, uh, which is the name from which we get the word Jews. North and south, irretrievably torn in two. God's chosen people who were called, who were promised to Abraham in order to bless the whole world, rent in two. Because of awful advice. And what a missed opportunity it was, wasn't it? I mean, if if Rio had only listened to the advice of his seasoned counselors, they said, listen, Rio, the people want to love you. The people want to follow you. But things have been hard under your dad, so just let up a little bit. 
relieve the tax burden a little bit. Give them a breather. Lay off of the building projects for a while. If you will love them and you will serve them, they will serve you forever as king. But for some inexplicable reason, Rio didn't like that advice. And so he sought out advice from others, advice that he thought he would like to hear. And where did he go for that advice? His high school skateboard buddies. That's where he went. The guys he drag raced with and hung out with and smoked at the skateboard park with. He goes to these guys and he says, Hey, these old geezers tell me that this is what I ought to do, that I ought to be merciful on the people and that they will love me. What do you guys think? And their response went something like this. No way, dude! Double down! This is your moment! You got the power! You're the king! Take the power! Show them who's boss! Solomon was derailed by bad advice from unbelieving. Rehoboam was derailed by bad advice from the inexperienced. Our culture does not honor the wisdom of the elders. Other cultures do. Ours does not. Rachel, as you know, our daughter is a a seminary student at Gordon-Conwell near Boston. She has a friend, a young woman from India who is here. And this Indian woman had the chance to interview for a mentored position in a church in the South that she thought would really be exciting. She wanted the chance to work under a mentor. She went down there, but her interview was awful. The, the, the guy who was going to be her mentor never said a word to her. She was almost forgotten. There was no sense of substance or direction. And so she came back quite confused because what was on the job description and, and her experience were in conflict. It happened that Cindy, my wife, was back there to visit Rachel at the time. And so she got into a conversation with this young woman. And Cindy just began to ask questions. This is the guy that is going to mentor you, right? What was your experience with him? Well, and what makes you think then that if that was the way he was doing when he's trying to invite you in to woo you into a job, why do you think you're going to have a better mentoring relationship with him on the, on the go? You are aware that this might turn out to be a, a slave labor internship. You're just going to be working hard for not very much money. You're, so Cindy just asked a bunch of questions. Cindy left and came home and then got a call from Rachel saying, hey, the, that girl, she, she, she called up and canceled her interview. She withdrew from the, the process. Uh, she said, this is exactly the advice that we gave her, but mom, because you're old, <laughs> she listened to you. That is, that is the way of other cultures. It is not our culture. We are the culture of Rehoboam. We are the culture that dismisses the elderly and chases after that which is young and trendy. And what a waste of one of our greatest resources. When I think back over my nearly 30 years of ministry here, and I look out here and I see the faces of those of you who have been here for all or most of that, I think of the wisdom that I have drawn from you. Uh, The things I have learned from you and the way that you have grown me and sustained me, it is such a precious gift. I really don't know that I could still be the pastor of this church in such a season as this had I not learned what it means to benefit from the wisdom of those God has placed around me. Rachel, when she went off to school at Whitworth, uh, all of her friends were going to a, a young hipster church where everyone was the same age and where your ears bleed from the music and so forth by the end of the day. 
And Rachel said, I don't want to go. I don't want to be in a church that doesn't also have gray-haired people in it. She loved you. She was blessed by you. And she tapped into something that I hope our church does a better and better job of. Linking together the generations. Don't you want that? Not separated, not apart, doing our own little thing, but drawing them together, linking them together, tightening up the ligaments that hold us together as a body, both young and old. You know, the fastest growing demographic in our church is young families. Did you know that? We have more than 200 young families in our church. And so Cindy and I really felt drawn to begin to work with that group and and to guide that group forward. And so we're meeting with them every quarter and teaching them a little bit about parenting and what we've learned about relationship. One of the visions that I have, though, is this, that every young couple, because we also have a growing number of, of empty nest couples, my, one of my visions would be that we'd take empty nest couples and partner them up with young couples so that they would have friends who would walk with them, who would know their kids, who would remember their birthdays, who would encourage them, who would be someone they could talk to, who could talk in, in church and have a meal together once in a while. But more is the point that they could share with them something of the experience that you can only learn when you have walked that journey of decades-long experience, Right? Wouldn't that be great? That's one of, the, one of the dreams, and we're going to have a meeting today, as a matter of fact, with the first group of mentor couples to begin the process of making that work. So we have in our story today bad advice from the unbelieving, bad advice from the inexperienced, and then there's one more piece of bad advice that you are going to see. And this, uh, this comes from the story of the tribes to the north. Who was the new king of the northern tribe? Jerry, King Jerry. Now, King Jerry had ten tribes that wanted to follow him. They were fed up with Rehoboam and all of the hardship. They were ready to follow him. But sure enough, no sooner have they started this new adventure, he begins to have second thoughts. He begins to be concerned about uh, how he's going to pull this off. And he realizes that there's one issue that's really a problem for him. Well, let me tell you the story from the story. Which is, this is the, the latter part of First Kings 12. Verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David, that is back down to Judah. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice... The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And one he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people even though they were not Levites. Take another look at the uh, map up here, um, and you'll see, you see the red crowns on, the, on either end? That's what this is talking about here. The north is Dan, the south is Bethel. He had a problem. Although the ten tribes wanted to follow him, he lacked one important ingredient to this, you know, this theocratic nation, this God-centered nation that the people to the south had, that King Rehoboam had. What was the one thing he was lacking? 
a temple, right? The temple to the one true God, Solomon's temple. And he began to have these terrible, unsettling feelings. You know, if the people, if they go down there to worship God at the temple, if they go on a little pilgrimage, once they get down there and they see the splendor of that and they're realizing that they're worshiping in the one true temple, their hearts might turn against me. They might change their minds and want to follow King Rehoboam. For crying out loud, they might assassinate me. And, and, and the whole thing will, will, go, will go down the tubes. That was his problem. And then we read the next three words. After seeking advice. Now we don't know who it was that gave him this advice, but it was a doozy, wasn't it? The person advising King Jerry said, listen, distract them from the temple. Distract them from it. You, you need to, to, to make a golden calf. In fact, heck, make two. Franchise. You know, double, double down. Put one in the north, one in the south. You can have golden arches, I mean, the golden calves, uh, all over the country if the brand catches on. Satellite campuses. Make it really convenient for them to worship something. If Solomon was derailed because of the advice of the unbelieving and, and, uh, and Rehoboam was derailed because of the advice of the inexperienced, Jerry listened to the counterfeit. It wasn't convenient to worship Yahweh at his temple. So why not provide a counterfeit God that is more convenient, more accessible. Does this idea sound familiar to you? When was the last time we heard something like this? Remember at Sinai, early on in the Exodus? Remember? They said, hey, Moses has been gone so long, maybe he's dead. We're afraid. We what? Do something. Make us a God. So what did they make? A golden calf. So it, and that worked out well for them, didn't it? I mean, on that day, 3,000 people were slaughtered. And just for a kicker, God threw in a plague over the whole nation. And that was the good advice back then. And so they doubled down on it. Not one golden calf, but two golden calves this time around. I wonder if there's any counterfeit advice in our culture. Any voices that invite us to worship a different God, a more convenient God, a less demanding God, a more palatable God. Any of those voices in our culture? I was in the bookstore the other day in the Christian section, and I saw a title on one of the end caps, uh, and it was called, the, the, the name of the book was The Power of I Am. It was written by a, a pastor, a kind of a controversial pastor in our country with whom I've had some issues before. But when I read the title of that book, I thought, awesome, awesome. As you know, I am is the English translation for what? Yahweh, God's holy name. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we explore in this book the power of the name of Yahweh and how it might make a difference, a revolutionary difference in our culture? But when I turned it to the back cover, I discovered it was not the power of that I am. It was the power of this I am. This book was about me and the things I declare about myself. And every chapter was a different declaration about myself. I am talented. I am blessed. I am strong. I am healthy. And the more I say about myself, the the stronger and better I become. That's the power of I am. 
some of you might have read this book. Some of you might get mad at me for saying this, but uh, that's never stopped me from saying stuff before. The theology that ascribes power to my own self-affirmation is counterfeit. It is bad, bad advice. But there's plenty of it to go around, isn't there? There's the counterfeit voice that says, you know, you don't need the church. You don't need the church. Just worship between you and God and, and listen to the CDs, worship tapes in your car, worship CDs in your car on a Sunday, whenever you're going, wherever you're going. There's the counterfeit voice, and I've heard this one that says, you know, this disciple-making focus that the church is on, it's too hard. It asks too much of you. There's the counterfeit voice that says, you deserve to be happy. And this marriage isn't making you happy. Find another one. We are surrounded by counterfeit voices that tell us that our worship of God should be convenient. Our lives should always be happy and our discipleship should be undemanding. And yet we serve a Jesus who said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Three kings, three horrible pieces of advice, one common catastrophic outcome. Every person here needs the counsel of spirit-filled, seasoned followers of Christ. It is one of the reasons that community is so important. It is one of the reasons that the church is so important, that life groups are so important, for it's an opportunity for you to rub up against each other, draw the best that you have off of each other, discern together what the Spirit of God is saying to you so that you make good, wise, life-giving, enduring decisions. The ones who walk this way are going to flourish. The ones who walk alone or pick and choose the advice that they want to hear, they are headed for the same catastrophic outcome that Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the whole nation of Israel experienced. I want to close this message with one more quote from Solomon in his better days. He said, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. We sang earlier, victory in Jesus. That is true. But sometimes the way that Christ's victory can be known in us is through the Spirit-empowered voice of others in our lives. If you are alone, you are at risk. We need the counsel of others to point out what needs to occur and to give us the courage to tear down the high places in our lives and in the culture around us and declare there's only one God, only one God worthy of our worship and we will worship Him. And if we will not, we will suffer the tearing, destructive fate of God's chosen people. Let us pray. It's a hard word, Lord, and it's a sad thing to watch as the people that you called into existence tore themselves apart because their leaders listened to such awful advice. I pray for our people today that we will not just be entertained by this story, but that we will be transformed by your word, by your spirit. I pray for those who are listening to or flirting with the idea of, of deep, abiding connections with unbelievers that you would pull them back from the catastrophe that that can bring about. 
I pray for those who do not seek the counsel of the elderly and and for those who are the elders who have never yet inserted themselves, invested themselves in the lives of the young. God, may we repent of that and benefit from the strength that that would bring to our church and to our community. And I pray for those who listen to counterfeit voices through their horoscope, on TV, and the radio, and the stupid periodicals that we read. God, save us from that. May we hear your voice and be so attuned to what is true that we just cast the other stuff aside. Lord, make us strong, pure, true, good, and faithful. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.